Good morning and welcome to Fordham Conversations. I'm Chris Williams and to coincide with WFUV's membership drive, today's show is all about membership to a society or to a community. We'll hear about a luxurious 19th century home turned into a social club and about how the members of the Bronx community might not be getting what they need. The music you're hearing is from the Salon of the Norwood Club in Manhattan. It's in a house that's over 150 years old, but it's decked out in modern art and eclectic furniture. It's a place for creative minds to come together, relax and create. I spoke with Alan Lynn, the owner of the club. He talked about his mission for Norwood and why the club isn't as elite as people might think. Hi, my name is Alan Lynn. I'm the North Norwood Club, 241 West 14th Street. So you started the club, right? Yeah, I don't know if like, people in New York know about it. Is the whole private new private members clubs began in London in the 80s with a club called Groucho's. Then uh, the second club to open was a club called Black's, which I ran for 12 years. Uh, Soul House, which is already in New York, was the third club to open. And it was really going back to the whole turn-of-the-century idea of having a space for people of a certain talent to meet. I mean, not like the university clubs where it was just, I went to Yale, I went to Princeton. The whole ethos of this is having somewhere where people of this... Again, with us, it's about the home for the curious. It's about people who are creative. It's not about celebrity. It's not about wealth. It's about talent and then putting them into this amazing 1845 building in New York and creating a club for New Yorkers. This is not a British club. It's a club for New York, for people to meet, socialize, uh, interact, uh, fall in love, I mean, all those things at once. The house, it's, it's amazing. It's huge. Um, can you tell me about the history of it and how old it is? So the house was built by Andrew Nord in 1845. Now, we're on 14th Street. Um, it's 30 feet wide, which is very unusual for New York sort of like brownstone building. This was the street that we had, um, like Demonicas was on here. All the theatres were on here. This was the top end of the city. Behind here was f farmland. That was it when it was built. So I think this is, you had to understand the historical importance of this building. Um, and then at the turn of the century, he, he died eight years later. His son took over the house. Um, and then, turn of the century, it became home for professional women school teachers. It was like a boarding house for them. And then it became a funeral home. Now, that might seem weird to you, but for me, it was the perfect thing because for me to create a business by all the coding of things is you have to have this, I mean, like coding is it has to be a business. So it became a funeral home, which meant it was a commercial business, which meant we could be, all those years later, a commercial business. And then 75, 1975, an amazing man called Raph Barillo found the building. It was derelict. He cycled, it seems he cycled by the house and it was like empty. And he thought, whoa, what amazing building. And so he spent 30 years of his life restoring the building. And what happened with me was I, I was trying to find a building in New York, came from London, wanted to find something that was intrinsically New Yorkian. The hallway carpet is a 1920s classic deco carpet that we recolored. Do you know what I mean? Like, we had the people who built the Russian tea rooms build a dining room. Again, it's all these references. And that's the whole thing that's really important to me is like, don't forget about your past. 
It's about the ingenuity making the establishment, but just throwing them all in and seeing how we move forward. And that's the whole thing about the club. It's not about elitism. It's really about just, we have to pay rent. We are a membership club. We ask people to pay because this building's really expensive. But the whole thing is just like, have someone who's an amazing sort of like producer meet someone who's a young artist. What happens when they meet? So in slightly it's the antithesis of sort of like going online where we're blindly typing and meeting people. To me, it was really important to have a sofa that you're going to sit on and share that sofa, but you don't know who you're going to sit next to. And because of that, when you do sit next to them, you might have commonality, you might disagree, you might fall in love, but actually put people in a space. And so then the house became important. I interview every single person that comes in this club. And I love hearing people saying, I'm really creative, I've came to New York, I'm finding it really hard to meet people. So in a sense, what we've done is done a vetting thing at the door, and as, as I'm saying to you before, it's, it's not about elitism, it's just about creative people, that I want these creative people to meet these other creative people. So that's the, the, the sort of like, uh, the passing the door where you can come in here and just meet other people who are creative and see what happens. So find a home for those people. One of the things that you said a little bit earlier was this is kind of an alternative to going online and meeting people. And Do you think it's important to preserve that sort of person-to-person interaction rather than you know going on a message board or something like meetup.com where people plan events and then meet up with them? They could be strangers. Do you think it's important for people to meet person-to-person, face-to-face? Well, I think we're all strangers anyway. Something when we come into anywhere where you go in a bar, when you stand at a bar... I think we're so aware of our surroundings. So it's interesting to actually sit someone next to someone and also look them in the eye and have a conversation. That's, I think it's like we're, it's easy to lose that. I'm not knocking it, but I think we've gone one way. But I also feel from when I meet people is there is a desire to actually connect and not just connect online. I want to ask you about members now, um, just generally how many members you have and do they fall into a certain age group, or is it kind of a big range and things like that? Our demographic is, for me, is because of New York license and laws, which is different from Britain, um, are, is 21 to our oldest members, 81. I don't care if you come with your skateboard. I don't care if you come with your limousine outside. When you walk through the door, you're all the same. I mean, the whole thing about private members club as well is you've got to keep it bubbling underneath. So you're always looking for new people. This is an amazing, huge country. So people move to LA, they move to Chicago. Do you know I mean like so? There's always they have kids. They're not going to spend the money to come out to the club. So you're constantly just bringing people in. But demographically, it's not about age for me. We've got 1,100 members right now. So how does someone become a member? Is there is there a process to that? I know you mentioned that you like to interview people before they join, but can you just go into more detail about you know someone who wants to become a member and how they would do that? I always say anyone can apply for Norwood if they're curious. That's, uh, it's always been my bottom line, it's curiosity and talented. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's not about who you know, because I think that limits you. There could be that great graphic artist that I've never met before who doesn't know anyone, do you know what I mean? But who's an amazing artist. That's who I want in the club. So do you have any um, high-profile members or you know, notable people, famous people, things like that? We've got a ton of them, but I would never give their names because it's not about that. They're just as talented as the first-time writer from Brooklyn for me. 
But yes, we do. I mean, all the way from Oscar-winning actors to, to me, it's like great designers and uh, great musicians, and they're with people. And it's, they're just people. They just want to be able to come and relax as well, everything else. So to me, it's like for them to be in a room with other talented people is more important. When you go see things and you hear things, they go, these people are doing really good things, but they're not necessarily the ones that's in the papers all the time, but they're still doing amazing work. And everyone knows they do it. And also, I think what a lot of time happens is with critics, you're trying to find the new thing. But there's also that person who's always done amazing work, but they're past that. They're not past a sell-by date, but it's just... The critics are new, looking for the new thing because they then can find them and promote them, whereas that other person has always done amazing work but never gets the credibility. And people that know their work say, they're an amazing artist, but it's just they're not going to be rediscovered, except maybe when they're like no, 70 or 80 and people, oh, we never miss that, but they're always doing great work. And so these people should be welcomed and of, like showcased. So how much does it cost to become a member? And the reason I ask is because you mentioned, you know, a lot of young artists come here. Is it affordable for them to be become a member of the club? That's always a difficult question, I think, to answer. It's because this is a really expensive building. I don't own the building. We, we rent the building. So to keep somewhere open for 10 in the morning to 4 in the morning and have staff in there, it's an expensive thing. So we have to make a living at the same time. We're not naive enough. And the whole thing, I, I don't think that our world is naive as well. It's like to be an artist, again, back to we, we have members who are, who are major bankers, but they're major collectors. And to me, you have to have commerce and art together. We can't live in a bubble of that. So we have written us to be uh, over 30. It is $2,000 a year. Um, what you join as is what you stay as for the rest of your life. So when you join, it's $2,000 for over 30. Uh, there's an 800 joining fee, and then there is tax and sort of things. But then we have a hundred, uh, an under 30 rate, which is 1500. It just pays you go because, again, most of our staff are artists and musicians. They need their tips at night. Do you know what I mean? Like, so there's no sort of like end of the month you get a bill. So. So you're open from 10 a.m. to 4 a.m.? Well, we're licensed to 4 a.m. Again, it all depends when people leave. I mean, and the other thing about this club is weird. It's like we're not like this sort of weird Monday to Friday where Saturday and Sundays are big days. We all have like the advertising wards on a Tuesday and we'll be packed. I mean, we can get a Saturday, especially in the summer. It's quiet where everyone's like people go to the Hamptons or out of town. You never know what you're going to expect every night. I mean, last night we were... They were hanging from the rafters. It was like packed. We had a movie screening upstairs. We had uh, an event there. We had an event on the club room we're sitting in. We had it was packed downstairs. We had a private dinner downstairs. You never know. But again, change by the hour. You know, I came in around three thirty, and it's a weekday, and there are people here. You know, I was I was a little bit surprised to be honest. Like I, I wasn't expecting it. To, to be, you know, for people to be here, I was expecting it to be really quiet wow. this time on well, the weekend. Tonight's really busy, really busy. <laughs> this is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7. I'm Chris Williams, and today we're doing stories about membership. All this week, WFUV is raising money from you, the listeners, in order to help create programs like this one. We're non-commercial, member-supported public radio, and every little bit helps. A dollar, five dollars, twenty dollars. Either way, you can help support the station and become a WFUV member. To donate, please call 877-938-8907. Again, that's 877-938-8907. Or you can donate online at WFUV.org. 
Now we return to the Norwood Club with owner Alan Lynn. After we talked, I asked him to show me around the house and describe how each room was designed. So right now we're in the club room. The club room is during the day we call the work room. Um, we had the people who built the Russian tea rooms build this room. Um, it was really important for me to have uh, booths. This is our second dining room. The first dining room we did was very chic, French, white tablecloth, nobody came. And then I realized, this, what do I like? It's like, it's the nosy factor. When you build booths, you can sit at a booth, and even if the people around you are boring, you get to look across the room and go, they're cute. Do you know what I mean? Like, there is that whole sort of sexy. So basically, again, the whole room looks into the middle of the room. That's really important. Do you know what I mean? That everyone's like seeing everyone. You can catch their eye. Do you know what I mean? Like, and then the food's all about just comfort. It's about, you know, the best chicken pot pie. It's about the best. Right, right now, because it's January, we're doing feast and famine. So we're doing very healthy food. At the same time, we're doing chicken pot pie. We're doing like a steak for two. We're doing this home and uh, sort of like pas de deux sort of thing. Sharing food, it's almost like Sunday dinner. We're doing like a cockle van where you get the big pot on the table. You scoop it out and you share it with someone. Again, that's sort of like sharing food. Um, this room's all donated art, so we've been really lucky to have some great pieces. You know, Gregory Crewson, Damien Hurst, things like that. People have given these for the room. Every floor's got a different feel. The lounge floor is a curated room, so it's curated once a year. Straight after Labor Day, we have one person who curates it, and this is their sixth year of being curating it. So we start, I'll probably start in about two months' time speaking to people who I want to curate the room. They've got to change the room completely. And then what we'll do is we want, again, again the whole about the club is the makes the establishment, is the juxtapositioning of new artists with artists that are established. So then what we'll do is we'll hang it and then we'll invite all the artists in to meet the members and talk about the work. And then we'll do a talk about the work. So again... It's been surrounded by it. We're not at a gallery, but it's just having those things. And even like downstairs, if you see it, there's a mantelpiece full of books. These are members who have signed books and put them in the mantelpiece. So it's not saying one's more important than the other, especially because like, I'm dyslexic. So I actually hate people who write books. Or I hate going to people's houses, which are covered in penguin walls, because they're shouting at me saying, we read, you can't. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I'm like, ah. I don't have books. Throw them away. Do you really read them? Anyway, so again, it's just being surrounded with those things, that sort of thing. And then when you get to the third floor, which is the salon, which is much more the rock and roll, late night space, all the art up there is either found, and it's slightly like a Royal Academy feeling, but it's just piled on the walls without taste. And then people give us pieces, and we just hang them. We don't even think about it. But the whole thing is just a bit like this curated and given, and so every floor is a floor you can find that you like. So Simon Coston was one of the guys that... Uh, Simon did all Alexander McQueen shows. Um, he's a good mate of mine and sort of things. So things like those mirrors, we had them cast in London. But we wanted unique things. Again, back to this building is to have the history, but add design and I mean, just keep layering it. And, lay and storytelling is one of my favourite things. It's like having stories to tell. And what happens at night is I see other members touring this building and saying, whoa, you must know about this and that. I mean, as we say, if we turn and look out the window behind us, you can see it's the original glass from 1845. Do you know what I mean? Like, 
it's completely mottled, handmade. And when that was there, that was countryside. I mean, it's just so beautiful to know this building survived this time. So. As we walked up and down between the floors, you can hear the creak of the stairs underneath our feet. The house is from another time, and Lynn says it might even be haunted. Oh, God, it is. Oh, it's haunted. Oh, God, yeah. I was with that. Oh, I'm going to, yeah, I definitely want to know about that. <laughs> I'll be here on my own, and the elevator just starts going up and down. People of being in rooms and doors shut. I mean, whether you believe it or not, but weird things happen in this building. Maybe it's just the age. There must be something that goes into buildings as well. There must be energy. I mean, we have so much energy going on, but we have weird things happening in this building. So here we are in the salon, as I'm saying. So all the furniture was designed by us. Um, we went to a company in North Carolina, and we supervised every single thing. It's unique to this building, and that was really important to me. It's like something special. Right now, I think the world's quite homogenized, and you go from, maybe it's like, I'm not knocking W hotels, but some people like that familiarity, but to me, when I go somewhere, I want to experience the city or something unique. So, I mean, even like, if you turn around these, this is actually one of my uh, um, barman's work, and it's, I love his work, so I love show, being able to showcase his work against, you no. Know, this, I mean, so this room, this is my homage to basically to uh, West Village Bohemia. It's a bit layering and packed. I mean, it's like Jonathan Adler sort of like lights, but then flea market. We've got Amy Winehouse. We have like Sack by Lemon there. We've got like, it's just layering and layering and layering. But without, without taste, I love this room's actually tasteless. I love that sort of feeling. I mean, like, I just got this photo, which was a 1970s fashion photography guy. I so like eyes of Laura Mars. I mean it's all it's all things about references. I mean things I got these in the flea market, which is this guy who was the illustrator for Hustler magazine, I get five for a hundred dollars and I framed them all. Do you know I mean like again, it's what happened. Do you know I mean it's just keep adding and adding and adding and don't think it's perfect. And then we have like a piano here so people come and play sort of thing. So um, so I love that piece there. We'll go upstairs. Next one. You always think this is the top of the building because the skylight. There's another floor up. Oh, okay, yeah. And all the floors are open, pretty much. Yeah, you can, you can go and sit. So there's not like there's not like a top floor that's like offices or anything it's, for well, you. Oh, well, we our offices up here, but again. Oh, okay. But apart from that, it's enough. So we have like easels there because uh, we do like life drawing class once a month oh. and it's actually not even artists that come it's people who always wanted to learn to draw again just coming and we have like a teacher and we do cheese and wine and people just come in and learn to draw so I mean, it's things they've always thought they wanted to do this is what we call the screening room and the whole thing again about this building is the silence when you go from floor to floor it's so it's so beautifully built. The walls are like 17 inches thick. But when you come, you come in, you think nothing's happening. You come upstairs and something else is going on. So this is a screening room. Uh, actually, uh, recently someone filled the whole room with plastic balls. And put a, uh, you had to dive in the room. And so there's all these adults up to their waist with a band playing in the middle. I mean, also we've done like a new opera up here. Um, 
We've shown you a movie, Sarah Jones, who won uh, um, the Tony for Bridge and Tunnel. She's performing next week in the club. So there's all different things that's spoken. We have haiku poets. We've, it's just keeping giving members new things to see. Give a little time for the child within you. Don't be afraid to be young and free. Undo the locks and throw away the keys and take off your shoes and socks and run you. Give a little time for the child within you. Don't be afraid to be young and free. Undo the locks and throw away the keys and take off your shoes and socks and run you. When you're a member of a community, it's hard to be in control, especially for members of the Bronx community. Cecil Bacalore, an urban planner and professor at Fordham University, talks about urban development in the Bronx and why certain projects aren't what the people in the area actually need. What, what can you tell me about urban development and um, maybe kind of how urban development has been happening in the Bronx? I would say that um, the Bronx is an interesting case because um, when you look at something like Fordham Road and the neighborhoods around Fordham Road, whatever you may think of the condition of those neighborhoods, the infrastructure, and what I mean by infrastructure is the public realm, the streets, the parks, the mixed-use streets, support the sort of everyday life of the people there. The idea behind a neighborhood that people can feel part of, that they can feel there's a history to, which sort of their identity comes from, is something which, even though in many cases the communities are considered run down, is the kind of thing that one can see there. And I think one of the issues with urban development today is that, unlike in the past where Government or government institutions like city planning took a major role insisting on a minimum of public realm or public amenities, public benefits. Now, much more, more emphasis is put on making opportunities for private sector development. And private sector development is essentially, whether it's housing or shopping or some level of mixed use, it, or even if it's institutional, pays much more attention to, one, the economic sort of format of, of sort of the investment producing return. But the other thing is that instead of thinking of it as an environment in which a community would thrive, it essentially is the community of people who have leases and pay rents. That's the problem, and I mean, a great example of a failure of an institutional building, to my mind, is the new library that's on Fordham Road, where you see the life on Fordham Road, you know, again, whatever you may think of it, the um, pawnbroker shops or the gold shops, the franchises where the clothes are out on the sidewalk, this is a kind of um, street scene that the people who live there are comfortable with. And then the new library follows a, a sort of typology of an institutional building that quite honestly would be totally intimidating to a single mother who's looking for advice about anything from childcare to finding a job to nutrition for the family. And the sad thing is that the Bronx 
has some great citywide institutions. You have Pelham Bay, you have the zoo, you have the botanical garden, all these kinds of things. So on an institutional level, on a citywide level, it has a lot of assets. But I think for um, urban design to thrive, it needs to address the needs of the everyday needs of the community that's there. So things that are like the library or um, sort of things more based in the arts wouldn't necessarily draw people to the Bronx as much as more um, everyday type of things? Well, I think those things have their place, but I think they do very little for the community. I think the classic example is the way... um, Jane Jacobs talks about Carnegie Hall, for example. So you could build a facility, any kind of art. It doesn't have to be music performance like Carnegie Hall. What for Jane Jacobs was crucial to a Carnegie Hall-type institution is that young people who wanted, who had dreams of becoming artists or musicians could find a place to live, could get trained, So there could be dance studios, there could be art studios, there could be, um, you know, places that um, sold musical instruments, sold musical sheets. So the whole community that's alive and that is supported by the institution around them. Sadly, what we see today too often is the institutional sort of investment is thought of just in the broadscape of tourism and asset to the city and the community around the institution becomes, if well, let's say if the institution is successful, the uh, possibility of young people forming a sort of a live creative community as a sort of neighborhood or district becomes less and less because, as in the case of Carnegie Hall, the rent, the property values are just too high for that kind of thing to happen. Although it did, it was the case in the past. One of the things that's happened in the past few decades is that um, Brooklyn really became gentrified. Yes. Do you think that there's a possibility of that happening in the Bronx? Um, I think to the degree this is a function of, um, you know, in large terms, um, the white middle class returning to the city. And one of the things that's crucial is during the Robert Moses era of the 1960s, when there was huge suburban growth in America, what happened was that many of these, um, you know, good housing stock, um, townhouse streets, um, type neighborhoods were considered slums in many cases in Brooklyn. These neighborhoods were redlined. Banks withdrew any kind of support. City government withdrew any kind of support for services. So these cities had to, these neighborhoods had to survive on their own. And then what happened when, you know, to make a huge leap, what happened when the sort of middle class made move back to the city, these neighborhoods which were considered sort of drug-infested, broken-down building slums suddenly became landmark districts, and they suddenly became valuable. So what needs to happen is, you know, for that to happen is 
There needs to be a shortage of housing in the city and enough people who are looking for the option of the kind of neighborhood lifestyle that, you know, today the Fort Greens and the Prospect Heights and the bed have become because of gentrification. The big problem comes, uh, what do you do with the existing population? One of the issues that hopefully de Blasio will be able to address is, you know, not just allowing the private sector to build um, market-rate housing, but in fact, if the private sector builds more market-rate housing, they're obliged to build an amount of affordable housing because what gentrification is essentially about, in large part, it's about dispossession of the community that pre-existed the gentrification. Great. Um, well, thanks so much for talking with me. I okay. appreciate it. Thanks. Have a good day. Okay. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to Fordham Conversations this week. And don't worry if you've missed a show. They're all available to download as a podcast or stream on our website at WFUV.org. And for all the latest updates, follow us on Twitter and friend us on Facebook. But before we go, I want to mention that the program you're listening to couldn't get made without your help. WFUV is member-supported, non-commercial public radio. We rely on your donations to help us produce these stories. To donate, please call 877-938-8907. That's 877-938-8907. Or make a donation online at WFUV.org. Stay tuned. George Bodarkey and Cityscape are next on WFUV. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Chris Williams.